All right, if you've got a Bible, <clears throat> go and open it to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8, that's going to be our, our scripture for this morning. We are on the, the second to last week in a series that Pastor Jamie has been leading us through this fall called Restore My Soul. Uh, every week this fall, we've been looking at a different reality about us in the gospel to restore our souls by seeing what is good and beautiful and true of us when we're in Christ. And today, as we, <clears throat> as we get ready to round out this series, we're going to look at this truth today, that in the gospel, you are called to a very specific job. That in the gospel, each and every one of us has a significant role to play in God making this world into what it was always meant to be like. So follow as I read Psalm 8 this morning. It says, For the director of music, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David, Lord, our Lord, <clears throat> how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Oh, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the, the moon and stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that Swim the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Life. What's the point of it? It's kind of a simple question for us to just work through this morning. On average, we get about 77 years on this earth. Or the amount of my own baked goods that I consume, I've already shaved off probably five or six from that. But what's the point of it? Why are we here? Why did you wake up this morning? Now, some people will say, nothing. Life is absurd. Death is just waiting around the corner for all of us. There is no point to all of this. Other people would say it's, it's all about your own personal fulfillment. Live a life that makes you happy and satisfied, one that you can feel accomplished with when you die. Uh, still other people would say it's all about making the world a better place. Love people, help people, mutually serve people, li live a legacy that goes beyond you when you die. Christianity says something different than all of that. 
the glory of God. That's the point of life. That as the Bible puts it, the the entire point of your life is to glorify and enjoy God. That life is actually not absurd. It's not about my own fulfillment. It's not even first about other people. It's about glorifying and enjoying God. So how do you do that? by living out the calling that God has put on all of our lives. So whether you have a job or stay at home or are retired, Psalm 8 is telling us that in the gospel, nobody gets benched. We all have a calling. We all have a vocation. We all have a work that we've been given by God to do. And it's, it's this calling It's following this calling that that is how we realize the point of life. So let's look through Psalm 8 and the four things that it tells us about our calling. It tells us about the God who calls us, the people he calls, the work that we're called to, and then lastly, the grace that we're called with. So first, the God who calls. David, he, he starts this psalm jaw open, standing in awe, looking at the world around him and seeing the glory of God in all of it. He says in verse one, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that there's not one place on this earth as David looks out at it where he can't see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the Lord. But it's not just that God's glory can be seen in all of creation. No, David takes it a step further than that. God's glory transcends all of creation. You have set your glory, he says, above the heavens, beyond the heavens, over the heavens, greater than the moon and the stars, he's saying, is God's glory. In our galaxy, the Milky Way, uh, there is about 100 billion stars. Now, to equate that to something a little bit more concrete, in a one-pound bag of rice, there is 29,000. Thousand uh, grains of rice. Now, to have as many bags of rice to equal the amount of stars in the Milky Way, you would need three and a half million bags of rice just to equal the amount of stars in the Milky Way, which, mind you, is one galaxy in an estimated two trillion galaxies in our known universe. And David is saying, Above all of that, beyond all of that, greater than all of that is the glory of God. This is the God who's calling you today. A glorious God and an invincible God. David says in verse 2, through the praise of Children and infants, you've established a stronghold 
against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Uh, in ancient creation stories, uh, they, they often include this battle between the gods over creation and where one God finally wins out the battle and he gets to rule over the world. And in Psalm 8 here, David's describing a fight. Foes and avengers who are enemies of God, who, who don't want his breathtaking glory to be seen in every inch of this creation. There, there is this fight and David says, God wins. With what? Baby talk. The praise of infants. That God is, he is so glorious. He defeats the forces of evil with the weakest, with the most vulnerable, with the smallest thing he can find. That the, the mumbling and the drooling and the burping of babies is actually a victory cry. That God is continuing his kingdom building work until one day his glory will cover this earth as the waters cover the face of the sea. And this God, this glorious, invincible God is the one who is calling you this morning to join Jesus in his kingdom building work. So the God who calls us, second, uh, the people, or no, sorry, I got ahead of myself. So a hundred years ago, if you, were, uh, if you were looking at uh, a career, if you, uh, you would have been told to find a job that uh, provides for yourself, provides for the people that you love. Today, you know, career counseling, they'll generally tell you, find a job that's, that's personally fulfilling. Now, neither of those are entirely wrong, right? Providing for loved ones is good doing something that you don't hate, that you're actually passionate about, that's good. Uh, but Psalm 8 here, Psalm 8 is setting this conversation on entirely different terms. Your calling in life, it's saying, isn't first to be thought through in terms of other people or in terms of yourself, but in terms of the one who's calling you. That, that our sense of calling, David's saying, it actually comes from outside of us. It comes from the glorious, unstoppable king of the universe, meaning he gets to set the agenda for your life. He gets to create the job description for what we do. And now that, that is hard for modern people like you and me to hear because we've been raised to see our calling, whether it's at a paid job or at home as a, as a vehicle for achieving our dreams, for creating a sense of identity, for, for discovering lasting happiness. And yet David here, he's inviting us into something so much better. He's inviting us here to see with him the glorious, invincible God of the Bible and to lay aside our ambition, our calling from inside, and instead take up a sense of vocation, our calling from outside of us, to answer God and join his kingdom-building work in our lives.
So now the God who calls us second, the people he calls. David is looking up at the nighttime sky and he asks a terrifying question. What am I? He says in verse three, when, when, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Now, David is interesting here. He doesn't say what we ex- would expect him to say. We would expect him to say what what he says later in this psalm. When I consider the work of your hands, what is man? But no, David says, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have pushed and prodded into place like a lump of Play-Doh, what is man? He, he picks the smallest digit he can think of to describe how effortlessly God made the universe and cries out, what am I then? I'm just one small speck of dust on one little rock floating around in this universe. What am I? You know, the, uh, the, the president, Teddy Roosevelt, he used to love hosting these big dinner parties when he was president. And he would invite over all these really important people, and, and he loved entertaining them and having these big parties there. And, but at the end of the night, when they would be leaving the party, uh, sometimes as they're walking home, he, he would make uh, himself and, and whoever there was walking with him, he'd make them stop and look up at the stars in silence. And then after maybe a minute went by, He'd say, okay, now that we're all properly small, let's go home. This same smallness is dawning on David. As he looks out at at the nighttime sky, contemplating the breathtaking glory of God, David is undone at how tiny he is. And yet as the moment passes, David is even more undone by realizing how significant he is. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. It's almost as if David can, he can hardly comprehend what's dawning on him. The great God of the universe who formed this galaxy, who formed the nighttime sky into place like a lump of Play-Doh is mindful of us. A Hebrew word that carries with it a sense of compassion. A word that doesn't mean that God just thinks about us, but that he is actually moved in his inner being to act for your good. This glorious, invincible God, he thinks of you. He cares for you. 
that for as small as we are, by grace, we are still significant in the eyes of God. Now, this idea that, that we're significant, uh, that, that we're unique, we matter, this is an idea that I think a lot of modern people, a lot of us in the room here today, uh, we can support, we can get behind. We like this idea. But here's the question. Does our modern culture, does modern thought today that says there is no God, there is no creator, we are just here through a, a product of accidences, through just a, a long string of, of evolutionary mishaps, does that actually give us the resources to support the idea that we are actually significant? Uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a He's an atheist author, very smart man. Uh, He puts what's kind of underneath our our kind of modern, secular understanding of ourselves and our world this way. He says, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is, and we all dance to its music. In other words, what Dawkins is saying is we are all just a lump of DNA. That's it. You're not significant. You don't matter. You're you're just a collection of atoms like any other thing on this world. That as Heinrich Himmler put it, there's nothing particular about man. He is but a part of this earth. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, I don't think a single one of us in this room actually believe that. My proof? Just look at your Facebook feed. We, we may not all be able to agree on what it is, but we all, modern people today, we all have an incredibly high sense of justice that comes from an incredibly high sense that we are significant, that we do matter. But how can we believe this? Can, can we scientifically validate what we intuitively want to be true, which is, I am special. I do matter. I'm not trash. No. But Psalm 8 can. Because it is saying the glorious, invincible God of the universe doesn't think you're a pile of garbage, doesn't think you're worthless, doesn't think you're expendable, doesn't think you're just a collection of atoms like anything else on this world. No, he says you are loved, you matter, you are significant to him. So the God who calls, the people he calls, third, the work that we're called to. So not only is the God who calls us significant, and not only are we in his grace, significant, but the work that he calls us to is significant as well. Uh, David describes this, this work that God calls us to first as a dignified work. He says in verse five, you've made them 
a little lower than the angels and crown them with glory and honor. Now, glory and honor are attributes for God in the Psalms. They're words used to describe his, his kingship, his royalty, only here, it's not God who's crowned with glory and honor. You are. Think about that for a second. Just look where your thumb is in your Bible. We, we have blown past Genesis 3. Th this is after the fall. After humanity plunged itself and our world into chaos, into brokenness, into sin, after all of that, God hasn't given up on us. He hasn't said, yikes, what a mistake. He hasn't fired us and brought in a whole new crew from outside. No, he's calling us to something so significant that the only words David can use to describe it are ones that he will later use for God himself. And we're all called to it. There's no JV and varsity here. This dignified work is a calling that God extends to each and every one of us. We're called to a work, David is saying, that's, that's dignified and that's delegated. David says in verse 6, you've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You've put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. David is essentially saying here this, we have been called to this dignified work, uh, but you are not self-employed. Our calling, our, our vocation is ultimately something that gets delegated to us. In other words, we, we don't own this world. This isn't ours to do with it what we please. No, we're stewards of it. Who rule, he says, over flocks and herds, animals, birds, and fish. In other words, all of creation. So this verse 9 says the glory of God would be seen in all of it. You know, Tim Keller says that vocation our work, our calling in life. He says it's, it's rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. In other words, it, it essentially just means this. It's taking what God's given you, whether that's your kids, whether that's your career, whether that's your passion whether it's something you do at a desk or at a construction site or in a classroom or in your living room, whether you make money doing it or not, whether it's something that's culturally impressive or not, and rearranging what you've been given for the glory of God and the flourishing of others. This is the point of your life, is to answer this call to do this dignified, delegated work. One that ultimately, like everything else in your life, for David and for you and for me, is wrapped up into your calling in Christ. 
Meaning, as the author Andy Crouch describes it, the the Christian way to approach your vocation, this dignified, delegated work, the Christian way to approach your calling isn't just to be ethical, isn't just to have high moral standards. No, it has to go beyond that. That is not merely enough just to be ethical. No, we also need to be redemptive. It means viewing your vocation, your calling as joining God in remaking this world into what it's always meant to be. It means taking whatever God has given you and shaping it a bit more into what God originally intended our world to be and will one day make it to be in Jesus. So the God who calls us, we've looked at the people he calls, the work we're called to, lastly then the grace that we're called with. Uh, So far, David, he's given us this inspiring vision of life, but there's a problem with it. We can't do this work on our own. Tucked away in verse four is a Hebrew word that brings this whole psalm crashing down to the earth. David says, what is man that you're mindful of them? Only what's interesting here is David doesn't use the normal word for man. Instead, he uses the Hebrew word enosh. Now, in the Psalms that come after Psalm 8 here, we get a sense for just how important that little subtle word change is. See, in Psalms 9 and 10, Enosh is used to describe oppressive people. In Psalm 11, Enosh describes humans who are corrupt. In Psalm 14, it describes humanity that doesn't seek after God. It's it's. It's the Psalms way of describing you and me, humanity in our sin. We are Enosh. Meaning as as David, as, as he looks up at the nighttime sky and contemplates the glory of God, he doesn't just realize how small or even how significant we are, but also how sinful we are. That we can never perfectly answer God's calling. We can never perfectly live out our vocation. Instead, on our own, we will always resist using our vocation for God's kingdom-building work. But instead, we will use it to, to build our own little empires. We will make our work not something that we use to redeem, but to exploit. We will use our calling to reorder the things God has given us to bring glory to ourselves. So how can any of us answer the call? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us how. <clears throat> in, the chapter, in chapter two of Hebrews, the author quotes this psalm here, Psalm 8. Uh, the author's talking about Jesus And he says, it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there 
is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of him? A son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God has left nothing that is subjected to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, I was getting up to Christmas time around this time of year, and I was tucking my son Neville into bed. And uh, he was two at that time. And uh, I asked him, Neville, do you know what's, what's coming up soon? And he said, Christmas. And I said, yeah, that's good. And I said, do you, do you remember anything that Christmas is about? And he said, Jesus. And I said, good. Yeah, that's great. And I said, do, do you remember what Jesus did at Christmas? He said, Jesus got small. Now that is as profound a theological statement you could say to describe what the author of Hebrews 2 is saying here. Jesus, the glorious, invincible God of the universe, became human. That he actually joined you in your smallness. The God who, who pushed the stars together with his fingers like a lump of Play-Doh at Christmas was wrapped so tight in a swaddling cloth that he couldn't even move a finger. Jesus, whose glory is greater, is beyond the physically known universe for a time made himself a little lower than angels. And in doing so, he did for you what we could never do for ourselves. He became the ideal human who answered the call, who fulfilled his vocation, who did his work, who perfectly served God as God's ruler on earth, who perfectly gave himself over to God's kingdom-building work of, of remaking what and who God gave him into what they were originally meant to be. Who Hebrew says is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for you. Because he went to the cross and was crucified himself for us. For Enosh for a word that could never be used to describe Jesus. For people like you and me who on our own will take what God has given us and use it to craft our own little empires for our own little glory. And Jesus did all of this. He completed the ultimate redemptive work, the greatest kingdom vocation of now welcoming us into the embrace of his father who loves you because as David describes it here in verse four, Jesus was mindful of you. He cared about you. 
He looked down from heaven with so much compassion that he was moved inside of him to act for your good. That Jesus, he didn't just look down at the world and see tiny little me and you and think we were just expendable, worthless, just a speck of dust on this earth. Never. No, the cross was Jesus shouting, you matter to me. You are significant to my father. You are not trash in our eyes ever. And it's now through Jesus that God is completing his kingdom building work. That as the author of Hebrews says, we we don't see everything under Jesus' feet right now. But the implication is that one day we will. That one day the trumpet will sound and Jesus will come back and remake this world and all who by grace belong to him into what you were originally meant to be. And our work, our calling today is to join Jesus in what he's doing. The point of your life is to follow Jesus in what he's doing. To like God uses the babbling of babies here in verse two, let God use your weakness, your inadequacy, and your powerlessness to glorify him as we join Jesus in remaking this world into what it will one day be in him. Let's pray. Father, you, are, you have a glory that is beyond anything we can comprehend. Father, the, the trillions and trillions of galaxies in the known universe can't even contain it. It's, your glory is greater than all of that. And somehow by your grace, you look at small sinful us and still think we are significant to you. And even more than that, you give us significant work to do. Spirit, help us to see and savor our forerunner Jesus, through whom we and this world will one day by grace be remade into what we were always meant to be. Amen.